You are listening to a Bible talk recorded at the 2018 Western Christadelphian Bible School at Manuka. This is the fourth class in a series given by Brother Matthew Blewett on the subject, Meditations in Revelation. This class is titled, Numbers, Sixes and Sevens. All right, well, it's uh, wonderful to be with you on the fifth day. I think uh, we were talking about meanings of names, and uh, I had to look up the meaning of the name Manuka. Well, it's the fifth day, fourth class is fifth day. Saturday was the first day. Fifth day, bear with me on this. We're talking about numbers. Uh, and uh, I believe Manuka means rest, and often it takes to the fifth day until we really feel like we are living up to the name of our, the camp here, Manuka. Certainly, I'm starting to feel restful on the, with the idea that I've only got to do one more talk after this. Rest is coming. Um, and so today we want to change our tact, uh, well, we kind of continue on meditations of revelation, but we want to take uh, a couple of meditations that uh, focus on numbers as symbols. I've spoken before about what is so amazing about this letter in the sense that its symbols are quite diverse. We've, we've looked at yesterday uh, uh, places and names. Um, we're going to look at numbers today and people who enjoy numbers, perhaps that will get their attention. And then tomorrow, if you enjoy colors and pictures, we'll focus on, on that idea. And, and I think that's what's amazing about uh, viewing Revelation as a letter, that Jesus is writing to us and trying to get through to us uh, in whatever language works for us. So I'm a bit of a spreadsheet guy. I enjoy rows and columns and numbers. So um, this is something that I enjoy uh, thinking about numbers and, and how they teach us uh, these great spiritual principles. Now, when we come to the the book of Revelation, of course, um, it is a very a numbers-oriented book. Uh, you may not have picked this up. Uh, in fact, um, there are uh, the, the the word number actually in the book of Revelation uh, is the word you uh, you may have heard of this word before, arithmos. Okay, and that's where we get the word arithmetic from, and it appears nine times. Uh, the word arithmos. Uh, in the book of Revelation, which is quite a few times. So we can see this is a book that's interested in numbers. Um, you may not have noticed that the uh, numbers 1 to 12 all appear in the book. Um, in fact, numbers are mentioned over, specific numbers are mentioned over 250 times in the 22 chapters of Revelation, which was quite remarkable for me to see, especially if you consider it's not a book like uh, Chronicles or Numbers, which is uh, referring to actual population groups. When it's making use of numbers, there's normally a very specific reason for using that number. In fact, um, I have got this lovely chart over here, and this chart has every one of the numbers mentioned in the book of Revelation, uh, specifically going from one-tenth all the way to 144,000, and there are the 250 mentions of, of numbers. So that's quite incredible, all the different numbers. If you like fractions, you can get excited as well. Some of us prefer fractions. Uh, everything there for you, if you're a numbers person. If we go back here, and this is going to be something that we think a lot about, because you'll be relieved to know that we're going to keep the arithmetic very simple today. Very simple. This talk will be over in two minutes, because you've just got to get one concept right, which we'll share in a moment. Um, you'll see over there that the number seven uh, is 20% of the 250 times numbers are mentioned. It's the number seven or seventh. 54 times, seven. Just remember that. So dominant number in the book of Revelation. In fact, uh, some uh, uh, Bible commentators say that actually the numbers go all the way up to 100 million. 
that's because uh, there's a mention in one place, the product is a myriad times a myriad of, of angels. So really, you've got one-tenth all the way to a hundred million uh, mentioned in the book. Um, I, I entitled this particular uh, session today, uh, Numbers, Sixes and Sevens. And uh, I did this talk somewhere else, and uh, some young people came to me and said, well, you know, what do you mean by sixes and sevens? Then I realized that this might be showing my age. Uh, it's, a, it's a phrase that's not used that often. You say you're at sixes and sevens, which means that you are? What? Confused. I heard lots of wrong answers, but confused I'll go with. I'm at sixes and sevens. So we're going to see uh, whether the book of Revelation is confused, whether it's at sixes and sevens. So that's a part of what we're going to do. So let's start with... Um, Let's start with our first little uh, meditation, focus meditation. And to do that, I want to start focusing your attention on the number one. And just to think about this uh, a beautiful passage that I'm going to put up on the screen here. Uh, and it's from Revelation 18. They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city, where all you, you where all who had ships on the sea, became rich through her wealth. In one hour, she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets, for God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. And when I stopped to, to focus on that passage and to meditate on it, what, what really jumped out at me, and that's why I'm sharing this meditation with you on, on the basis of numbers, is this idea that, there's this, this incredible power that the book of Revelation talks about that takes a lot of time to describe this power that is, is demonstrated through the dragon and the beast and eventually through this great Babylon that we were talking about yesterday. That, that all of this power comes to an end in, in, in just one hour. Its demise is swift and it's furious. It's all over in just one hour. And I want us to think about that concept for a while, that it is all over in one hour. This one hour principle that is uh, concerned, uh, that, is, that is emphasized here. You know, from an inspiration point of view, we often, and we'll see this in our, in our, in our next meditation, we live in a world where the power of the reality of man seems to go on forever. It doesn't seem like it's going to be transient, that it's going to come to an end. And yet, the inspiration of this meditation is... It is transient. Its time is only one hour. And you may not have realized this before. That's the smallest time frame that is ever used in the Bible. There's no concept in the Bible of, of minutes and seconds. They didn't have a concept of time like that. So an hour is, in fact, the smallest concept of time. And one hour. Twinkling on a bar. Okay, very small time. Time period. And so we have this idea that that the, that the systems of men, although they seem to us to be so so permanent, because that's all we've ever experienced, uh, the inspiration that we're giving from Jesus is that really it's transient. Uh, it's something that we cannot uh, build our foundations on. And if we think that that's where we're going to take our trust in, like we were talking about, in, in fact, that middle verse of the Bible that we were taking to at the end of, of Bill's session, is your confidence going to be in man? If it is in man, well, in one hour. That's all going to be taken uh, to nothing. In one hour, we are going to see that brought to nothing. And, of course, it was Jesus who said that, that if your foundations are built on the system of Babylon, in other words, on the sand, uh, then when that storm comes, they will not last. They will go, he said, immediately in the flash flood. But if it's built 
on that which is strong, the foundation that he provides, then it will last. But there's a kind of inspiration here as well. It's not just a warning to us to say that that the systems of men will be gone, and if you're putting your trust, they're only going to last for one hour. There's, there's an inspiration in this too, because not only are we to understand that that which is seen is temporal and that which is unseen is eternal, the inspiration is that, in fact, the time of trouble is also just a short time. And for me, that's a great inspiration. Always has been in my life. I haven't been in Christian's talks, but I think my wife was sharing with me. He was encouraging us to view that sometimes when we're in tribulation or we're going through suffering, it seems like it's forever. It seems like it's here to stay. And we know that there's encouragement in many parts of Scripture that, that what seems like forever is only a little while. Um, uh, Peter talks about that uh, we count it all joy that we go through diverse, uh, uh, when we go through suffering. If for a little while, there's this idea that, that what seems like forever is only for an hour. I mean, Jesus, when he went to pray in that moment of, of, uh, of, of real temptation for him, uh, that, that, that climax of his own journey, he comes back to them and says, what could you not watch with me for one hour? Again, the idea is that in, in the concept of eternity, the road that we're on, the, the test that we have is only one hour. It's the shortest time frame that we are asked to, to come through. And, 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 and this is really the encouragement I think we're getting. Uh, Jesus says this, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial. Just one hour, and I'm going to be with you during that hour. Of course, uh, Peter, James, and John couldn't stay awake for the hour, but Jesus says, I won't fall asleep for that hour. I will be with you. I will be present in that hour. So for me, there's a great inspiration in this idea of one hour, that short time frame that, that the world will be in control, that it will appear like Babylon is, is, is ruling, has taken power. And in our own lives, it may appear like it is forever, but, but the Lord is with us and he will take us through the one hour. So that's a simple meditation from the idea of one. And now I want us to move to another number. And let's think about probably one of the most well-known passages in all of the book of Revelation, uh, a passage that is well-known because it's been uh, uh, brought into the secular world. Uh, a lot of people like to talk about this passage and the number that it refers to. So it's Revelation chapter 13 and verse 18. Here is wisdom. Let him who understands calculate the number of the beasts for the number, it is the number of a man his number is 666 or 666. So here's a passage that um, has got the attention of, of many people, as I said, uh, in the uh, secular world, in Christianity. People have spent a lot of time trying to say, well, what is this? Who is the 666? What do we need to be afraid of? Uh, what is this number of the beast? And of course, there have been all sorts of uh, interpretations from the, the Roman Catholic Pope to a barcode payment system and various other interpretations of the number 666. What we want to do is what we've been doing in this approach all along, is we want to think about the symbol and we want to look at it from a Bible perspective. What are the echoes? What do we find? What, what, what's being taught to us through the number 6 and particularly through the number 666 and see what spiritual truth the Lord Jesus Christ is potentially trying to share with us today at Manuka in Portland, Oregon, in South Africa in 2018. 
and how is it relevant to us. So that's what we're going to spend some time doing. And I want to start off with um, just thinking about uh, uh, this idea of six and seven in the book of Revelation. Um, obviously, we're reading here and we're focused on the number of the beast, this idea of 666. But as I said from the beginning, there's just one piece of arithmetic you're going to need to remember today to get really the power of the message of the book of Revelation. I was just talking to, to, to John before I came and stood up here, and he, he really, he said he, he, he thinks he can summarize Revelation in two words, and he's doing a better job than me. I'm going to summarize it using a, a equation, and then I'm going to tell you what his two words are, and you can see whether you agree. So, so if we look at sixes and sevens in the book of Revelation, we're told, as you can see in that passage that we've got up there, that here is wisdom, let him who has understanding calculate, or the word is count, the number of the beast. And of course, that's led to many people trying to count uh, 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 people's names and work out whether they can make it worth 666. And maybe, maybe there's something there, but I'm going to do a simple count for you. And the count that I'm going to do is this. Let's look at six and seven in the book of Revelation. Uh, I mentioned this little chart here. And if I zoom in over there, and if I use my little fancy zoom, which I've actually failed to use too often. Oh, because it's actually, uh, I think it's not, uh, let me forget my fancy zoom. All right, over here we can see the number six. Hopefully those who've got good eyes, how many times does the number six appear in the book of Revelation? One. The number six appears five times. Below on the screen, 666 will appear once. In total, if you want to take all variants of six, you've got seven. You agree? Not too much difficult calculation there. Let's take the number seven. Seven how many times? 54. Seventh, five total? 59. Basic mathematics. Which one is greater than the other? The sevens or the sixes? Seven trumps six in the book of Revelation. John says, book of Revelation, not, not the John that, that gave us the book, the other John, the John in the room. Two words, Jesus wins. Seven trumps six. So if we can work out what seven means and what six means, that's it. That's all you need to take away from today. Numbers in the book of Revelation. But this is the powerful statement, just opening up the book and listening to what it's saying to us. And of course, you know, when we talk about numbers and we go and have a look at what they mean, uh, um, sometimes there's numbers that we can get a bit doubtful about the meaning of them and there can be a number of different meanings. And of course, I should always say every number with my multidimensional approach will have a number of different meanings. But I think there are two numbers that we can be pretty sure about what they are trying to communicate. And that's the number six and the number seven. And, 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 you know, we know in a sense that the book of Revelation is about the number seven's victory. Because right at the beginning, when, when John is, is given the vision, what does he say? I was taken up in the spirit on the, the la, la, Lord's day. The Lord's day. What do we start with talking about um, at the beginning of our session? Cam, you did an exhortation on the Lord's day. Sabbath, seventh day. So right at the beginning, we're kind of given a hint that this book is about the victory of the seventh day. It's about the victory of the Lord's day. And that's what plays out throughout the book. I've said over and over again, it's about a, a tussle for power. There's rebellion. Man wants to take power. Man wants to establish his name. And God is working through the process and saying that seven trumps six. So that is uh, at its simplest principle. Revelation 1.10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Everything that really happens here is about the Lord's day. The seventh day is 
are victorious. Um, but in reality, we can get caught into understanding that, but we're, we're sucked in the sixth day. We, 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 we wake up each day and, 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 and things are as they were. They continue, as that passage says there, since the fathers fell asleep, man continues to exert his power. The tribulation, the suffering, the pain of the sixth day just carries on. I guess there's a bit of poetic liberty I'm using here, but I think there's something significant in it being six, six, six. I understand it's 666, but there's, there's almost a stutter happening here. There, 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 there's that we, we, we're stuck on six, one, two, three, four, five, six, six, six. There's a difficulty to get through six to seven. And I think the book of Revelation is, is telling us that seven's coming. Don't get stuck in six. Don't fall into the trap of looking around the world and, and your experiences and saying, I don't know so much about the seven ever coming. And that was the spirit that Peter is referring to there, where, where people looked around and they said, mm, I don't think so. And that's what he says they did in the days of Noah. Floods coming, floods coming, floods coming. Interestingly enough, how old was Noah when the floods did come? 600 years. Waited six day and then the change. The flood came and the change took place. So there is this, this principle that I'll be referring to over and over again of, of, of moving from six to seven, not being caught in the transience of the sixth day. It's a day of transience, but it can become a day that feels uh, so permanent uh, for us. So, so let's use the, the technique we've continuously used. Let's, let's think about the, the number six to start with. We'll move on to six, six, six and, and let's go to Genesis and, 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 and let's confirm what seems to be the right approach that this number is all about man. And, and, and you'll know where I'm going, but I, I want to focus your attention on something that perhaps we, we don't think about as much when we go to Genesis. So if you have your Bibles, it might be clearer to go to Genesis 1, 24. Um, and here we have the sixth day, and we, we know that this is the day of man's creation. But what we may not pick up with, and, and the beginning of the echo is there for us, and it's a beautiful echo, isn't it, to the passage in Revelation? Because Genesis 1 is not just about the creation of man. Uh, we know from our Sunday school, verse 24 on the sixth day, the Lord said, let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth. You see, those kind of, you know, this is what makes the word of God so incredible. That, that the number six has now become the number of the beast or the number of the beast has now become synonymous with the number of man. But it was there. The potential for that was right there because the sixth day was not just the day of man's creation. It was the day of the beast's creation. And, and in fact, that word there, cattle, funny enough, not the word beast, depending on your version. I'm reading the New King James Version. But the word there, cattle, is in fact the word beast that's picked up in Daniel. When you have the, the beasts that are presented, it's actually that same word that's used there, cattle. So, so these are, this is a beast system right there in Genesis 1 and verse 24. But here's the thing. Right in the beginning, we're told this. We're told that, that man, verse 26, that man, let man, let us make man, verse 26, in our image. So on the sixth day, there are beasts created, and then there's a special creation. And I've been teaching the young people about the key to the Worldview, Christianity's worldview on origin. Two key things. First of all, that God made heaven and earth. 
Absolutely. Second, that he made a special creature called man in his image. Once you get that idea, everything makes sense thereafter. This is why he's special. He's in his image. But here's the thing. Because he's in his image, look what it says. Let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over all the cattle, the beasts. Verse 28, then God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. Listen to the language. I mean, it's almost as if God is saying, this is a day that has a beast and a man on it. But you, you are made in the image of God. And what you need to do, the parable playing itself out here, is you need to have dominion. You need to subdue the beast that was created on your day. And in doing that, you will reveal, you will give glory to the image of God. You'll move to the seventh day. Because that's my day. You'll move from six to seven. And, and when we understand that, we begin to understand that absolutely what's been taught in Revelation the idea of the image, the idea of the beast actually now being man, having chosen not to reveal the image of God, but the image of beast. And so now the beast, in a sense, is ruling over the sixth day because man has worshipped not the image of God, but the image of the beast. And so this idea is clear. And of course, when we follow the, the, the history of Israel, which we, we're seeing in, in Bill's talks, is, is a parable teaching us about Life today in 2018, this idea that, that Israel had to subdue the nations. In a sense, that was the way they were going to have to dominate the influence of, of the world system, the beast system. And, 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 and when they, they came into the land, we're told that one of the first things they were told to do, set up the tabernacle and subdue the land. It's the same word. Have dominion over the system that can come in and, and, and poison you. David, uh, 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 the same word is used of David. David dedicated uh, all the things that he had, the silver and the gold, he dedicated them in preparation for the um, the temple which from the nations which he had subdued. There's that same word to subdue, to have have dominion. So so man's intention is to is to fill the earth with God's image so that ultimately, as I said, we can move from the sixth day to the seventh day. We can move to the day that Revelation envisions when God will say, I can live with man. My day becomes the earth's day. And, and so there's this idea that the book of Revelation is trying to move us from the sixth day uh, to the seventh day. Uh, but we find ourselves trapped in uh, the seventh day. So let's, let's now have a look at how one gets to move from the sixth day to the seventh day. How do we get to overcome? How do we get to subdue the beast? And of course, we, we fall into the trap over and over again of thinking, well, Matt, the only way we can subdue the beast is to understand what it is. It's sin. It's the world that's around us and we need to fight against it. We need to resist it. We need to come to Bible schools and read our Bibles more. And we need to find a way of defeating the beast. And of course, all of that would be absolutely wrong if that's the conclusion we came to. Because there's no way, no matter how much we read our Bibles, there's no way, no matter how many Bible schools you come to, 50 in a row, that you'll ever gain the strength to subdue the beast of the sixth day. And you know, the Bible doesn't take long to tell you how to do it. In Genesis 3, straight away, the message is given to Adam and Eve that only one will subdue that beast. Only one will have the capacity and the power 
to inflict upon it a mortal wound. And you don't need me to teach you that that one is our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who will be able to destroy the beast. And that is exactly what we have here. The only way to destroy the beast, the seed of the woman that bruises the head of the serpent. When John, um, here's some passages, I, I won't go through those for the sake of time. But when John describes this uh, beast system, he, he, he obviously brings the language forward and, and explains to us that we live in the world, the cosmos, the, the world system with all of its influences. And it's this system that we're up against, that we are trying to resist through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting, you may not have noticed it when he, he has this beautiful passage about the love of the world and the love of the Father. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it but he who does the will of God abides forever. The word there, world, this, this beast system, six times. Again, the number six, linked to the world, linked to the beast. And of course, he brings the idea to us again that it's passing away. The sixth day comes to an end. There's an evening. And we are to wait for the beginning of the seventh day. So I think you will agree there's some powerful echoes, some very, very simple ideas that we can grab hold of. Yes, the number six represents man, but worse, it represents a beast system that man no longer gives glory to the image of God or works to reveal the image of God, that he ends up revealing the very image of that which he should have had dominion over. It teaches us that the only way he can have dominion over that is to find the seed of the woman. And in doing that, move from day six to day seven. So I want us now to, to take what we've learned about six and then maybe focus on echoes of 666. So let's have a few, few, few echoes of 666. And I'm sure some of you who've looked at this, looking at it from a biblical perspective, would have been to some of these places and some uh, are, are, are more meaningful than others. But there are three areas where arguably uh, there are at least a multitude of sixes and potentially three sixes. And I'm not so concerned as to whether it's an exact match to 666, but I am trying to illustrate examples of where the number six comes up uh, and perhaps we are gaining lessons. So let's do that. Before I do that, oh, this is very interesting. Um, tomorrow we're going to talk about focusing on spiritual, but the natural world so often uh, teaches us what the spiritual world is teaching us. We're going to see an example of that very clearly in our meditation tomorrow. Um, I did this uh, session, as I say previously, and someone came up to me, and I'm not a chemist, so if this is wrong, I have tried to check it on the internet, you can correct me. But they made an interesting observation, and the observation is that carbon, which is one of the most abundant, not the most abundant uh, uh, um, elements in our um, earth as we know it. In fact, what's interesting is carbon is the second most abundant element in the human body. What's the most? Anybody know the answer to that? Oxygen. Okay, no, a chemist, I might go with him. All right, let's call it one of the gases. I'm happy to go with one of the gases. And interesting, because we could go down there as to, again, what trumps what. So the, the gases in the air trumping the, the material matter. But carbon, and I hope I'm right on this, second most abundant element in the human body. And interestingly enough, uh, as you can see there, it is number six on the periodic table. And uh, I'll check with John Young. 
Am I okay to say there are six electrons, six neutrons, and six protons in the carbon atom? So perhaps nature also teaching us something about uh, what we're talking about. So let's um, move to uh, spiritual echoes, which are much more exciting. So this one you may or may not have seen. Perhaps the first example of, of, of 666 in the scriptures, or certainly that which is manifesting the number six, is of course in the example of, of Goliath. Uh, David comes up against this champion of the Philistines. He's presented to us as this ugly enemy, this uh, all-powerful enemy that all of the Israelites are running from. And uh, in Second Samuel, we read, this champion went out and immediately the echo is there. We're told that he is very tall. His height is six cubits and a span. So our attention is drawn to this, this representation of the number of man. But we pick up another six. If you come down to uh, verse uh, seven, we're told that his the, the, the spearhead, this incredible spear that he carried, was so heavy that it weighed six hundred shekels. Again, one of the I love reading transliterations and some of the newer versions of the Bible. I think it gives us great insights into into the um, the, the kind of meaning and the spirit behind many passages. But one of the great things of keeping. Also, a literal version of the Bible in our, in our war chest or however you read the Bible is because it does preserve some of the numbers that seem to be in the original manuscripts. And so we can pick up the idea that six is here also in the spear that Goliath was carrying. And potentially, there's another six hidden in Goliath. I won't uh, uh, belabor the point, but there are six specific items uh, that are recorded that Goliath is wearing. Uh, the one, perhaps, that could be argued as a spear. We are told about the, the actual shaft and then the spearhead. Six items, six cubits high, 600 shekels. So there's definitely sixes involved with this giant that David is coming into, into contact with. And you know the story. And, and it's interesting, even in this story, is the illusion to the beast. When, 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 when Goliath uh, confronts David, this is what he says. First of Samuel 17, verse 44 the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. All right, so who do I represent? Who have I come to give dominion to? The beasts of the field. I mean, these echoes cannot be by, by pure chance. The word of God is just echoing through everything we are reading here. So he represents that which gives victory to the beast. Interestingly enough, David does use a similar retort, but he makes it clear where his power is coming from. He makes it clear, and this is key, that he's not going to fight this giant with a spear or a sword or whatever sword could make available, but by the hand of the Lord. And so this idea that we said, the dominion, the way to overcome the beast, the way to triumph over six is built into this idea that we have to find the stone which the builders rejected. We have to have the Lord Jesus Christ at the center of our discipleship. Any other energy, any other effort will not achieve the victory. So here is a manifestation, as it were, of 666 in a, in a very ugly, a very, a very um, noticeable form. The enemy dressed like we might expect to see him. And, and so the next example where we see this uh, uh, repetition of six is in this story that you also know very well. The story of... Nebuchadnezzar's image that he put up on the plains of Shinar. And here is this, this great golden image that he establishes and calls all the nations into to, to worship. And um, 
It says this in Daniel 3 and at verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. So immediately we, we have our attention drawn. There's this repetitive, repetitive use of the word six. And again, potentially the third six is not as obvious. It's the idea that when they were called to worship this idol, there were six forms or categories of instruments. The last being just a category of instruments that were, were played to bring them to worship uh, the, the image that Nebuchadnezzar had established. A couple more echoes to pick up. We're going to pick up now the idea of gold. The image that has six associated with now is linked to gold. We're going to see that come through a bit later. So here is 666 linked to gold. We've seen that 666 in the example of Goliath was linked to beast. What happens to Nebuchadnezzar not long after this incident? He becomes as a beast. Again, the echoes are running through. This is the, this is what makes it just so exciting to pull these strings and see that the word of God's integration, it's, it's all integrated together. And, and what's interesting here, and I think sometimes we miss this point, that, that whereas the, the manifestation of that system in Goliath was around fear, uh, nobody, the world works in fear. It, 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 it takes over our mind through fear, through a Goliath system. But sometimes it works exactly the opposite. There's, there's the idea potentially that, that this image that is presented by Nebuchadnezzar is about fear, but to me, it actually was more about attraction. Uh, you know, this, the idea of this image was not to be something that was ugly. It was made of gold. I can tell you one thing. If there was an image this big made of gold in Oregon, we'd be making a stop before we went back to South Africa. I mean, it would be incredible. Pure gold. You see, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't trying to make something ugly that they would run away from. But something beautiful, something attractive. Come and have a look at it. And I can imagine that, 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 that many of the Jews in exile might have thought to themselves, well, you know, it's quite attractive. And surely there's nothing wrong if we just join in with the rest of them in front of this attractive image and pray to our God. We can still pray to our God in the presence of this beautiful image. And so here is, I guess, the, the world system presented in a slightly different way. In our lives, there are things of fear that take away our reliance on God, but then there are things of attraction attracting us, the things we idolize, the things that we find attractive that are calling us back to six, to be attracted to, to this image, this image that is presented again as a giant. And once again, the, the three friends of Daniel who, who resist that, they're unable to resist the fact that they're going to die because of that. And they're taken and they're put into the fiery furnace. And once again, how do they actually overcome the situation? Well, of course, when Nebuchadnezzar looks down on them, uh, he sees that there are four. Didn't we put three into the fiery furnace? But there's four. And the fourth looks like unto the Son of Man. You see, the, the echo continues. You're only going to ultimately overcome 666 if you have the Son of Man with you. Because he is Lord of the seventh day. He is the one that will bring you into the seventh day. You will not go into rest unless Joshua takes you into rest. These echoes are coming thick and fast through the word of God. As we look at the biblical definition of 666. And then of course, perhaps the most stunning and most direct echo is found with this man. Solomon. We read in 1 of Kings chapter 10 and at verse 14. 
the weight of gold that came in to Solomon yearly was 666 talents of gold. And if that doesn't make us look carefully and grab our attention, then nothing in Scripture will. Because we saw a demonstration of 666 in a giant from the Philistine land. We saw it in a beautiful idol in the land of Babylon. But wait a minute. Now it's right in our own country. It's right in our own church. It's the head of the temple. It's the king who was made for peace. Solomon. Surely there is something that is altogether different. And again, we have this association, as you can see, with gold. This, this amount of money that was collected uh, by Solomon, 666 talents of gold. I'm told, we we're doing comparisons, that represents over a billion dollars in today's money. Solomon was collecting a billion dollars a year. He was an incredibly wealthy man. And what we discover when we now dig a little bit deeper into Solomon is quite remarkable. I would argue that there's no other man in the Bible with whom six is more associated with. Just do your own research and your Bible concordance. Put the number six in variance, 60, 600. And look at how many references come up relating to Solomon. The one we've spoken about, the gold talents. He bars chariots from Egypt for 600 silver shekels. We'll look a bit later. He builds a throne with six steps. He buys shields that are each 600 gold shekels in, 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 in weight. Uh, he makes uh, a part of the temple using 600 gold talents, the, the weight of the, of the gold that he used to overlay the temple. And there are a few other examples as well. So the word of God is saying, look at this man. This man that, 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 that would be so close and so dear to you. And yet there is an association with six, with this incredible man. And there's a sense of development here, isn't there, in the concept of 666? Because we're now having to think about gold and we're having to think about trading. And we know those echoes are back there in the book of Revelation. And we're having to think about the idea of money, which we really looked at today, the, or previously in the week, that the love of money is the root of all evil. But, but where is the essence of this idea? And the essence, I believe, is in the idea that everything ultimately has a price. That everything ultimately can be traded. This mindset that we can so easily fall into. That there is a price of gold that everything can be bought with. And when you're there, when you're at that point, you cannot move to the seventh day. Because you cannot accept this. For it says in scripture, Look, I lay in Zion a stone, a chosen and priceless cornerstone. And whoever believes in him, will never be put to shame. You see, this man has no price. There is no trade that you can do for him. And when we get locked into the sixth day, everything has a price. And we're caught and unable to move. Do you notice something really interesting when we read that meditation in Revelation? We often focus on that verse saying, let us count the number of the beast. But what does it say before that? Here is wisdom. And let him who has understanding. Now I ask you, of all the men in the Bible, where is the echo being drawn to? Who is the man to whom wisdom was given? Who is the man, if you again put in the words wisdom and understanding, 
At least 25% of the times that that appears, it's either written about Solomon or written by Solomon. Those words appearing together. Surely we're being told that this is the one we should maybe look to. And listen to some of the things that Solomon had to say about wisdom. Proverbs 16, verse 16. How much better to get wisdom than gold and to get understanding to be chosen rather than silver. But the truth, uh, again, Solomon, Proverbs 23, verse 23. Listen to this. Buy the truth and do not sell it. Also, wisdom and instruction and understanding. There's no trade for it, he says. A man who is eventually caught up in trade. So what happened to this man of wisdom and understanding? That he got trapped in the sixth day. How does wisdom and understanding get corrupted by the beast? You see... The answer is always consistent. There's this edge that we live on, isn't it, in our calling? We are called to, we spoke about this yesterday, we are called to be co-creators. We are called to multiply and and, and to live a life of abundance. That's our calling. We're not called to go up into some uh, mountain in Oregon and, 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 and put everything we have into a napkin so that we don't get defiled by the world. And and this is particularly a, a particular vulnerability for leaders as it was in the case of Solomon. But in that process of multiplying, the edge is that we lose the cause and the purpose. And surely this is what had happened to Solomon. You'll remember that there was written, um, let's see if that gets any bigger. Yes, it does. You'll remember that there was written that that law uh, for the kings, that very, very clear law in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 16. And listen to the language here. It said, you're going to want a king, but here are some laws that that king needs to manage his life by so that he doesn't become someone stuck in day six, someone who in multiplying like he should do, he becomes corrupted. Deuteronomy 17 says, but he shall not multiply horses. Is that where that sentence ends? Who can tell me how it finishes? For himself. You see, in essence, it isn't the multiplication. That's our calling. Be fruitful and multiply. He shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives. What does it say next? For himself. Lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. The name giver becomes the name creator. It becomes all about him. And his reliance on God is over. And so you don't need me to point it out to you in that very passage that we've been focusing on where he receives the 666 gold talents every year laid out for us in scripture. He had a chariot that he bought from Egypt and many, many horses. That's the chariot that cost him 600 shekels of silver. That should have been a bit of an echo for him. First of Kings chapter 10 verse 29. And then first of Kings uh, 11 verses 1 and 3. King Solomon loved many foreign women. And we know that they had a great influence in his life. And then finally in Second Chronicles chapter 9 where we've been reading. He gathered the gold and the silver from all the nations around him. And in case we didn't get all of those echoes. And in case the great echo from Revelation is not drawing our attention to the lessons of Solomon. Solomon does this. He spends ages building a palace, doesn't he? And then says, I'll build myself a throne. And he makes that throne out of ivory. 
And we're told this, and I'm afraid I don't have as beautiful a picture, but I definitely got this answer right straight away when, uh, where's Chris? Oh, he's not here. But Jennifer's here somewhere. Here we have it. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with pure gold. The throne had six steps and the top of the throne was round at the back. There were armrests, armrests on either side of the place of the seat and two lines stood beside the armrests. Twelve lines stood there, one on each side of the six steps. Nothing like this had been made for any other kingdom. I don't want to argue in the detail, but it would seem to me, and there's different views by the commentators, six steps, 12 lines, six lines, six lines, six, 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 leading to an ivory throne, King of Solomon. You see, brothers and sisters, we can spend a lot of time working out some external identification of the beast. But there's the problem. It's not even Solomon. If we haven't worked that out right now, if we haven't seen that it is the spirit, the spirit that is so close to home, and really the metaphor and the image that's been presented to us in the King of Solomon is to say, yes, you may have identified it in Goliath and, 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 and overcome that. Yes, you may have identified it in the attractiveness of, of the idols of the world. But here it is right in your own temple. Here it is right in your own heart. And have you identified it there? And have you worked out how to overcome the transience of the sixth day? So here we have what I believe are the echoes of 666. Jesus revealing to us the different ways in which we may be trapped in the sixth day. Ways in which we may be trapped and unable to move into the seventh day. It is about trying to overcome the giants in our life without the only one who can defeat the giant, we won't be successful. It's about resisting the powers of the image of Babylon by asking the Son of Man to join us in the fiery furnace. It is about constantly checking our success, our multiplication, our God-given multiplication for cause and purpose. It is about a number of a system that is very close to home. Indeed, in the very temple.